The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello there. Right, so we get on to one of my favorite subjects today, the digitization of probably the most unprogressive industry in the world, the construction and property industry. So this is going to be a good one. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Today's guest graduated from Queen's University with a Bachelor of Applied Science in Mathematics and Engineering. Worked his way up into the ranks of H.H. Angus and Associates, where he's a director of digital services. Welcome to the show, Akira Jones. Thanks so much. Really excited to chat with you guys about this stuff. And thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Akira, when I graduated in 1983, we were just getting into the world of that's CAD. The, that's the year I was born. That was the year I was born. <laughs> it was just the very beginnings. Here we are 40 years later or so, and it's full on a digital world. Uh, it's been probably the only progressive changes we've seen in the construction industry is, has to do with how we design and manage buildings and building energy systems. Everything else is still as old as Adam. Adam, (laughs) I don't know which one of us is older. Anyways, how the hell did you find yourself in the middle of this digital world that we're in? Tell us your story. It's a great question. And I would say that it was certainly an interesting road to get here. It wasn't a very straight path. I took engineering out of school because my mom said, you can be an engineer, lawyer, or doctor. You got your choice. So I picked engineering. (laughs) You know, in school, I took a program called Applied Mathematics, which was really kind of a math and engineering degree. And again, the decision to do that was simply to choose the hardest thing I possibly could. I grew to regret that. It was a very challenging program and uh, I managed to scrape through. And then going into consulting engineering again was just kind of, I was looking for a job. And, you know, in my early 20s, I wasn't maybe quite as focused as perhaps I am now. And so I, I got into an engineering consulting job. I think like a lot of folks do, not really knowing what that was kind of chugged away and, and learned the industry that way. And so my first company, it was McGregor Allstop Limited. Got some really interesting experience, obviously, but uh, I got the opportunity to go to HH Angus to help them with BIM on a really, really large project. So this was the Shroom Hospital in Montreal. And so at the time, I think it was the largest single build infrastructure project in North America. For HH Angus, this was the second project that they were doing using BIM. And so this is a second project using Revit MEP. And I had some experience and they brought me on to help the team get through that. And that's really kind of what it was. And that project, I still, it still comes up every once in a while, rears its ugly head. And I have to remember something I did 10 years ago or the decisions (laughs) I made 10 years ago, which is always fun, right? You always kind of look back and say, why did you do that? Why did you make that decision? And from there, it progressed. That was kind of the beginnings of BIM at HH Angus. And over the course of several years. The team grew to help support BIM and digital project delivery as it kind of gained traction in industry. And it was a very long, slow road in that sense, because not a lot of projects on our side were using that particular tool. But these days, 
I was taking a look at it recently, and I think almost 40% of our revenue is based off of projects that use BIM and Revit. And that is a massive shift over just the last few years. So that's kind of like the long and the short of it. I think as we kind of got through and expanded on the BIM world, we got exposed to a lot of different interesting things. And as digital twins started to come into focus and 3D scanning and IoT and smart buildings, we started getting the opportunity to work on some research projects with educational institutions and whatnot. And here we are today doing projects that are completely kind of outside of what we would typically do as engineering consultants, you know, doing small digital twin implementation pilots, installing IoT sensors and healthcare campuses and doing a lot of 3D scanning, scan to model type projects. And so the organization kind of realized that this is coming like a tidal wave and we should have a group focused and resources focused on doing this. And so that is how digital services at HHA kind of emerged. How long has that been a, let's call it a department within the business? Honestly, like six months at the most. It really became formalized towards the end of 2021. And now, like I said, the big shift was that it was not just folks on the team kind of helping with BIM for operations and the design folks, it's hiring people that could help us with digital project implementation. So we've picked up some folks who have skills in AWS and the Amazon Web Services certifications, fellow data analytics and machine learning experience. We're just continuing to expand along that vein. Tons of questions for you. I think I'm going to leave my question for the past for the end because it gets you to think about where we've been and where we're going to go. In terms of standards, like 3D scanning, maybe explain that what that is to people. And I'll let you do that. I'd also like to know like, if there's any standards that are being written for this stuff, or is it just a free-for-all right now? I'm so alone here in the office that they don't even like, uh, see me here. <laughs> got to turn the lights back on. <laughs> I got to move more, I guess. So yeah, I mean, 3D scanning, there's a variety of different technologies out there, right? And basically, it is using some kind of hardware to digitize a physical space. I think when a lot of people probably think about 3D scanning, they'll think about LiDAR-based technologies, so laser-based technologies that create point cloud data. I mean, these create massive data sets, but very accurate 3D models. And then we use something what's called the Matterport scanner quite a lot. And so this is a, a scanning technology that uses photogrammetry and structured light to create a very different output. But it's an output that is far more accessible to the average person. It is a web-based or cloud-based product. So you access a 3D model online through any web browser and it's photorealistic walkthrough. And so this is a really great tool that we've started to use in the office. I mean, I think we started in 2018. Now we have four scanners across all of our offices across Canada. And we have hundreds and hundreds of almost a thousand different scans completed of all the building sites wow. that we work in. We use this as a supplement to surveying, right? I mean, talking about how the industry is slow to change. I mean, even myself, I would, when I was still going to site and doing engineering work, I would take a notepad, I might take a drawing that I printed out and maybe a digital camera because when I started working, I still had like a flip phone and you'd take some pictures and you would make some notes and you'd make some notes in your book and then you'd get back in the office and you'd say, huh, I forgot to look at this. I forgot to look at that. None of the pictures I've taken make any sense to me anymore. And you're going back to site. Whereas with the 3D scanner, 
we can send folks to site, even often who don't have context on the project. Mm. And you get a 4K photorealistic walkthrough. You bring that site back into your office. It's really changed how we do our survey work. And it also allows us to capture data during construction, share this with anybody on the project team and whatnot. So that's a really cool 3D scanning technology that we like. And we also use 360 cameras. We take 360 video, 360 still images. There's so many different ways to capture data from site now. So are you doing during construction and then post-construction scans? It depends what the client wants, right? We've done some projects where we're providing a service where we are capturing the construction progress over every two weeks over the course of the construction project and sharing that with the GC and, and the other designers on the project. And sometimes... We do final state scans just for the client because they want to have that as their own collateral. I would say a majority of the scans is things that we have done to help with our survey work. Well, I keep thinking H.H. Angus Institute of Architectural Construction Design. That's a huge educational tool. Or working with the universities. I mean, my God, I can't think of a better way to bring students into the world on site, right? 100%. I mean, I know you folks probably feel this way too, but that first time you saw the thing that you designed on site, it was completely like, you're like, (laughs) oh, that's what that looks like? That's how big that thing is? Giving that ability to folks in our office, particularly during the pandemic, has been great because they can see what a site looks like. They can see what a chiller plant looks like. Bringing that kind of real-world context is priceless. That is so true. I remember the first time I saw a real big chill-out startup (laughs) And I'd only ever seen it on paper. Then I went there and a guy gave me some headphones and it started up and it was like, I was so frightened of that thing. <laughs> yeah, it's eye-opening, right? <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah, and then the worst part is when they look at you and go, if this doesn't work, it's your fault. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I remember I got sent on a witness test once for a train chiller in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And here I am like 26-year-old and they're like, so is this like, working the way it's supposed to? Are we hitting all the test months? I was like, I don't know. Why are you asking me? You know, why, why do they send me this? Yeah. It's interesting hearing you talk here because I gave a talk at a conference about two and a half years ago now where I was laying out what I thought the future of a commission engineer would be. And it was basically, if you've got a bachelor's engineering degree, stop there. Never do a master's. It's a complete and utter waste of time for several reasons. But one of the main reasons is the future engineering commission engineer needs AWS skills, analytical skills, algorithm writing skills, right? It's exactly what you're talking about. You're sort of like confirming what I was sort of like trying to project. Now, when I said that, I had an audience of about 150 people in front of me. Half of them looked like me and they were not at all interested. And the other half, who's like age began with a three or below, were excited about it, right? So there was this divide. So you must be seeing this in your business, right? If you've got an office, like H. Angus for our international viewers, they're a 100-year-old company. They're one of the venerable older firms and very respected firms based in Toronto, but all across Canada. So they're a bit like the Arab of Canada, for want of a better word. And the fact that they keep reinventing themselves like this is impressive. But you must have within your organization, like people like me, old, gray hair, no hair, right? Are they going to upskill themselves for this? Or are they slowly going to fade and then the new generation is going to come through? This is a great question. And I mean, I think this is something that's really likened to when we went from paper to AutoCAD. I must have been extremely challenging. And I know that that was probably (laughs) (laughs) very difficult for a lot of people. We're actually kind of 
facing this internally right now because we are now as an organization pushing towards the wider scale adoption of BIM. So really making BIM and the BIM tools our primary tools for design and digital construction, design and delivery. And so obviously the biggest concern for folks is we still have folks in the organization that have only ever done AutoCAD. They're still used to doing hand markups. But what I would say is that, and I was chatting with somebody in my organization about this recently, when we went to virtual work environment in 2020, it was a real shock, but it was something we had to do. And there are folks in this organization that you would have thought maybe that would have been very challenging for them. They picked up the virtual work environment quite well. They picked up teams, started doing markups on Bluebeam because they had no choice. And there's two parts to it. It's communicating that this is the strategic direction of the organization. But then it's also like helping to support these people. I truly think like as engineers, as kind of stuck in our ways that we can really be is that these are intelligent people. And they, at one point in their lives, had learned a lot of stuff and continue to learn a lot of stuff. And I think there is certainly a lot of learning that goes in our day-to-day work as engineers. It's just supporting them in the right way to make sure that they feel like they are supported when you make this transition. And I think a lot of folks in this kind of shift to the BIM world, you're going to have the people doing the production. And you're just going to also have people that need to have a window into what's happening in that design. And I think the window doesn't have to be that complicated, right? There's a lot of tools that we have potentially that can allow folks to access things through web browsers, not have to open Revit or the design tool and have the design information and the pertinent stuff displayed to them in a way that is meaningful and they can help make decisions on the project, right? It's kind of like leads into digital twinning. You know, a lot of folks are like, oh, digital twin, like we can make a digital twin. But it's like, so what? Like, what is the twin doing? What is it telling you? And ultimately, it comes down to the thing is giving you data or insight so that you can make decisions that are important to your organization. Is that ability, right? And so I think it's along the same veins as that, you know, everybody here in the office uses the internet, right? So everybody here can access a web browser. If the data is presented in a way that's meaningful to them, that's the key. Yeah. Just for our listeners, when Akira shifted over to the digital twin conversation, everything leading up to that was basically a really nice way of saying, old people, you still have value in the engineering community. I for sure everyone has value. <laughs> That's what I heard. Everyone has value. Like in our industry, experience is king in that like yeah, if totally. you have built something and you've seen how it's gone wrong or you've seen how it's gone well or you spent the time to figure out how a building works, like that is invaluable, right? Yeah. That doesn't change, right? No, I have to admit, you know, I have a, a legacy client that has been a real joy to work with. And even though I'm retired, they still keep me around every once in a while for phone conversations. And one of the greatest pleasures I get out of participating, because they're so far ahead. I mean, there's in terms of the digital world, like they're in a different place than I certainly am. What's uh, inspiring is to see the young minds like yours and those that are in that world enter into that world with so much passion and so much enthusiasm and getting to see how it can actually change the world of architecture and engineering. It allows people like ourselves to have that, like that window you're talking about, to be able to see that going on in the window that we're offered. It's really, really inspiring to see it. And Adam, I think I shared a story with you once. I gave a lecture. It was on Exergy. And uh, we're talking about the problems that our generation have created for the upcoming engineers into the field, right? And society as a whole, right? In terms of the inefficiencies and everything that we've done, I was pretty down on what 
our legacy was and the challenges that we left behind. But this old guy who was older than me came up and he basically said, you know, Robert, you really need to have faith in the young generation. Just like we've solved problems in our day, they will solve the problems of their day. And so, yeah, you're right. That window that we get to look at and to see how that generation, your generation, and those sort of before you and after you are solving those problems, real day problems with these digital tools, it's inspiring for sure. The digital space, certainly the space that you're operating in and sort of enabling and developing is what I like about it is it provides the feedback loop, the visibility. This is what you're doing. This is how it's performing. This is the actual efficiency. I know you had this wonderful calculation and you got a little pat on the head for it, but really we're interested in how it actually works in real life, right? And this is enabling technology. It's what I call enabling technology because it brings back that feedback. And then what's going to set the winners from the losers out is what do you do with that feedback? Do you refine right. your design or do you do your copy and paste stuff and carry on? Right. Exactly. And this is what we talk about internally is that often when we work on projects, there's a point at which we'll come back to the site or the building and things are in a very different state than what we left them, right? And we're missing exactly that is that relationship with the stuff that has been built and how it operates and getting that data back. Because I think our design work is often based off of historical work that we've done and what's worked in the past, still very much looking at conservative design criteria to make sure that something is sized correctly. And I think in consideration of all these things, where is the efficiency going to come from now? It is seeing how things actually operate in the real world and understanding what the edge cases are. And climate change also is a huge factor in this, right? Because I think those ASHRAE kind of design day criteria, that's going to change. And so we might be designing things for climates that are changing before our eyes. And I think having real-world data is going to be extremely important to help mitigate that and prepare ourselves for that. You've hit yeah. one of my sort of pet subjects on the head there because the way, particularly in North America, you don't get sued for oversizing, but you get sued for undersizing. So you guess what happens? Everything's oversized, right? Yeah. But 70% of the time, those systems and equipment operate in the midpoint where the efficiencies are not great, right? Exactly. So when you're getting the visibility that technology is now starting to provide to us, I'm hoping it's going to lead to better systems design where there's a better interoperability between the peak and the middle, right? Because that in the middle is where we live. And systems For design sure. and delivery does not recognize that right now. For sure. And I think that there's lots of opportunities. And we have a group here, the Energy Group, and they look at on-site power generation and microgrids and yeah. battery technology and stuff like that. And all of that technology is really going to help enable that higher efficiency and better equipment sizing and whatnot. Because if you're able to generate power on your own site and uh, it's green energy, not only are you being efficient, but you also giving a lot more flexibility for your building to react to things that are outside of the normal kind of expectations, right? So there's a, so many pieces to this kind of puzzle, but a lot of them are really coming into focus. And the people that are able to connect those dots together are the ones that are going to really succeed in the next 10 or 15 years. I like the saying of adaptive learning, right? So once this data starts coming in, you're going to get the ability to do what I like to call adaptive learning, where the data comes in, machine learning, AI, whatever we're calling it, Skynet, looks at this, analyzes it, and then makes decisions based on real-time response and real-time demand, right? Mm -hmm. And then sure. learns what works and doesn't work. And slowly you get this evolution of building performance that sort of slowly, hopefully goes up. So you think about it, right? Up until now, 
a building gets handed over, let's assume it's been designed, constructed, and commissioned properly. Let's dream, right? Okay. Then the owner gets it. And what happens to that performance? Over time, it just tends to do this, right? Now, there is an assumption in contract law that the performance does this. My question is, why can't the performance do that and get better and better, right? Sure. This technology, you're starting to move towards that as a possibility, I think. 100%. I mean, one of the research projects that we were working on, I think that's really fascinating, is that it's looking at using machine learning to do exactly that model, a, a particular behavior within a building, yeah. with the goal to provide a recommendation at the end to how you can mitigate that. And so this is looking at stack effect in a commercial office tower. And so the research team was able to pretty successfully model the parameters around the stack effect using machine learning. And Again, it's really interesting to look at it from an academic perspective because part of that, they did a systematic review of all the existing literature. And up until that point, it had all been physics-based analysis of stack effect. Nobody had even kind of thought about using machine learning to model this. And this is where it is, right? You model the behavior and then you optimize on it and then you refine the model and you continue to optimize. And the thing is, it just requires a lot of data, right? It requires weather data, requires your BAS systems data. Eventually, even further refinement, it's going to require occupancy data and the building systems load. So these things build upon each other, but you start looking at, with all of these things, you start at looking at a very simple question and a very simple problem because you can't really kind of approach it with kind of like, we're going to like solve everything all at once. You have to ask the right question and build from that point. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now back to the show. There's a great example, sort of what we're talking about, and that has to do with all the heat-related deaths that occurred in British Columbia last year, mm-hmm. right? And so if you go back to the ethos of the design of the buildings that those people occupied, a lot of them were based on natural ventilation, adaptive comfort. Climate change was not considered in those buildings. So sealing up the buildings to try to control the indoor environment wasn't an option for some of them. The fires came, they had to close them up. Outdoor temperatures begin to rise. The solar loads on the buildings was high as it's ever been. And these people got stuck. They would call into the 911 system. There just was insufficient a number of people to actually help these people. And of course, the deaths occurred. So when you look at that continuum and the continuum that we're sort of talking about in terms of the future of digitization, well, at some point we can learn a lot from what we've done in the past. There's also seems to be a, I don't want to say a denial of responsibility of what we did in the past, but I think going forward, engineers, in particular those that are involved in sort of this digital world and, and creating these models and all the data, I think it behooves us to try to maybe go back and take the technology that we know today, take a few of those buildings and run them through the systems and create those data points. And then there's a huge resiliency story there that we can use with that data. I mean, it's interesting to think one of the benefits of having moved to something like Revit as a design tool is that now you have your design in a database, right? And 
it still needs a lot of effort to kind of go through and glean the data or the insights that you want from it. But at least you have that. And we do have access to our clients' BAS data on occasion, and it depends on how close we are with those clients. But there's certain clients that have given us access to their BAS systems. It's all there. It's all there just waiting to be looked at. It just needs somebody who has the skills to look at it. I think, unfortunately, a lot of folks who come through the engineering programs don't get data science training. And it's really, really important, I think, for a future engineer to understand data science, at least at the, in the basic form of it. I know tons of folks who have gone back to do uh, graduate degrees in data science or even just take certificate courses or online courses. Mm-hmm. And it's all the you know, under 30 folks because they see the importance of it. They see what kind of value it can bring to your work, any kind of organization. So Think about it. Like if you do your 3D scanning in a building that had several deaths, heat-related deaths, so now you have the building model. You can look at the data that occurred, the outdoor environmental conditions that occurred, the indoor environmental conditions that occurred, and then using predictive weather tools, you can say these buildings and these conditions based on previous data, when we start to see these if-thens start to happen in the outdoor world, this is what could happen to these individuals who have don't have the physical or physiological systems to be able to deal with the overheating. So mm-hmm. it becomes an alert system. And that alert system could be done through the weather channel. Like people get up in the morning, like, well, what's going to happen today? Well, people that are managing buildings can do the same thing and say, well, okay, well, based on the past, when these conditions started to happen, we need to move these people out of these units into cooler spaces. It could be in the parkade for all we cared. Just is this, these are short-term solutions so that people don't overheat, right? So there's a lot of things that you can do with today's technology and take it to the past and then incorporate it into predictive systems and we could save lives with it, right? For sure, yeah. Because all the stuff, I mean, it's not about abandoning the past, right? There's tons to glean from everything that Absolutely. exists. Absolutely. And the fact is, is that it's all well and good to say we're going to do like a smart building or a greenfield site and everything's new and stuff. But 95% of the buildings out there, we're still going to have to use for a long time unless you're going to start tearing that stuff down. Absolutely. Right? So we have to be able to adapt those buildings for the future. And I think there's a massive opportunity for engineers there, like the example you gave, or to start optimizing on how the building systems you know, operate and getting more data from that. There's a huge opportunity there. That's a great segue to existing buildings. The built environment is 99% existing buildings, right? So this is really the elephant in the room. Do you and your team get involved in analysis on existing buildings or managing existing buildings or helping them sort of retrofit? So honestly, this is like a great interest to our team because like you said, there's so much existing building stock out there and the folks that operate those buildings really want to leverage the new technology. So I think in terms of the stuff that we're doing in terms of our pilot projects, they're often focused on how we can work within an existing building because we feel the opportunity is there. And then a big part of it and why we're really interested in AWS is that these folks also need digital infrastructure to support the things that they want to do and the data that they want to collect and whatnot. And so I think this is a, another important aspect of it because the great thing about digital infrastructure is that it doesn't matter if you're a new building or an old building, you can build that digital infrastructure to support right. the things that you want right. to do. It's really quite fascinating how there is a lot of 
software and hardware technology that's available that really makes it possible to deal with existing data sources. I mean, maybe if you're working with like a Metasys controls system from the 80s. My nemesis story. is <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, even like a modern IP-based control system, you can plug into those and you can start extracting data and putting that into a cloud environment. And it does a couple of things, right? It allows you to take existing data sources from legacy building systems that don't talk to each other and put them in a common place. And it also frees or maybe democratizes that data for the owner, which up until this point, often maybe just have a window into that data themselves and maybe don't get much insight out of it or don't have much control over it. And so this creates an opportunity to do that. And like I said, there's a lot of tools out there between AWS, Autodesk Forge, and some hardware products that you can kind of bolt all those things together and create a relatively lightweight digital twin that gives insight on specific things that you're looking for, right? When I'm not fighting crime at night, I'm a paid blogger. And I got paid by someone just before Christmas to write a blog about the future of facilities management, digital facilities management. I wrote about digital twins. So I sort of explained what it was, to my understanding, which is thankfully consistent with yours, you. <laughs> and I spoke about how blockchain and NFTs and IoT and 5G would integrate into that. So just to take them headings, do you see, let's take the easy ones first, IoT, the Internet of Things and 5G, I think that's well underway. Would you agree with that? I would say that IoT is, is well underway. 5G, yes, although there's, I think, a huge kind of infrastructure challenge in Canada particularly, right? I think the big telecom companies really are looking forward to 5G and IoT because they see adding millions of subscribers, the edge devices, to their networks, which I think is a very kind of archaic way of looking at it. And I think a lot of building owners and operators may not be understanding that there's a big opportunity for them to manage their own hardware, whether themselves or as a managed hardware service, developing the 5G antenna systems and, and fiber optic networks within their buildings to support the IoT stuff, right. as opposed to paying Rogers or TELUS for the 5,000 extra subscribers in their building for all the IoT tech. So I think there's something that needs to be sorted out there. And I think there is a shift in the industry coming. But there is a massive opportunity there and a huge gentrification of 5G telecom infrastructure that's coming. Yeah. I just don't know if Canada's quite going in the right direction yet on that one. Good old Canada. They'll be late to this. They're late to everything, right? I can exactly. say that. <laughs> exactly. That is the one guarantee. Yeah, you know who we are. <laughs> you're right. The existing telecoms infrastructure here is a real oligopoly, right? I will pin a medal on the people that break that down, but I don't see anyone who's got the will or power to do that yet. Exactly. I mean, if you look at the US, the structure of the network is very different. You usually have a third party that manages the infrastructure and then telecom companies lease space on that yes. network. Whereas here, Rogers, Telus, and, and Bell own all of their own hardware and they're very touchy about other people using that hardware. And so until that kind of change happens, I think it's always going to be, like you said, this kind of oligopoly of the telecom vendors kind of ruling yeah, over us. Canada's a great place to live, but from a business point of view, there's a few curses hanging around and that's one of them. I want to pick your brain on blockchain and NFTs. And so I'm a huge fan of open source as a method of transparency and truth. So what I mean by that, it would be awesome if 
there was a law in Toronto passed that said all building owners have to post all their utility bills online. Because you know, some nerds somewhere will jump on that, produce a database that Energy Star and work out who's swimming with no swimming trunks on and who's swimming with swimming trunks on, right? Who's winning, sure. losing. That would be awesome. And then the other aspect to that would be having that on blockchain where people couldn't mess with it and start gaming it or cheating it, right? So do you see blockchain as an application that might come into digital twins and buildings? I do. I mean, I think this is one of those things that this is going to be a huge challenge, I think, for folks in the industry to understand and also then the adoption of it. I certainly see that, like we were chatting about this um, kind of internally because we're working on a project here related to project management on a digital platform, something that we would provide to our clients. And I think blockchain and NFTs could really play a part in the future of how the digital path of a design through design and construction or the management of construction contracts could really benefit from the blockchain. I think this is probably where there's two paths to this. It's like your kind of digital object that is created as you design and construct it, and then the contracts kind of surrounding it. I see those as two pathways where blockchain will have an impact on the construction industry. In terms of when that's going to happen here, I think that's a long way away because as much as I think it's really interesting, I think people have a really hard time understanding the blockchain. And even look at cryptocurrencies, there's a bit of a war going on, I think, between governments and crypto. There are some countries that are starting to buy Bitcoin as part of their national treasuries. So you see that kind of shifting over. But I think the large economies of the world see it as a threat, both from a fact that they may not be able to understand it, but also a threat to the current financial industry, right? That obviously is so massive and our world depends on it so heavily. I think this kind of decentralization of currency is going to have like a huge impact. And so I think there's a lot of stuff that has to happen before we see that more widely adopted. And I think there's going to be a lot of ups and downs in crypto before we see that kind of settle. It's well worse at the moment. I always thought crypto as a money its use might shift to something as a way of becoming a source of truth, right? a single source of truth rather than a function of money. So yeah. I ended my paragraph on blockchain on my blog that said, in my opinion, blockchain will effectively digitize the quantity surveying and project management professions. It will take the middle management away, smart yeah. contracts. So the other one is non-fungible tokens. So my take on that was, so get into total nerd land here, right? Ooh. How many times have you been, and in Canada, this is a bit of a source of uh, aggravation, the as-built drawings. Let's live in a world where the as-built drawings are finished and accurate 100%. I mean, we're in a fantasy here. So a, that is a complete fantasy world right there, <laughs> the alternate <laughs> universe. You could issue that as an NFT and say, right, that is frozen in amber. You can copy them, you can adjust them, but this is the record set in an NFT. I'm surprised someone's not jumped on that and done that. It's a good question. It's funny that you kind of bring this up because we were kind of kicking this around in one of our working groups. Somebody had brought up NFTs. I just think people don't understand it, right? Which is funny to me because the fact that something unique has value is not a new concept, right? But the idea that it's kind of this digital object I think really throws people off. They have a hard time understanding the implications of what that is. And the as-built document is a great one because organizations often have a huge amount of challenges 
being like, okay, what is the current thing? Is this the as-built? Is this the as-built? Is it this pile of drawings over here that's been sitting here for 50 years and collecting dust? Is it this binder on the shelf? Is it the CD that somebody burned for me? In, what, in are you looking inside my office here? <laughs> right? It's a huge challenge. And to say that you have a digital object that you can guarantee is the thing, I think has a huge amount of value. But I just don't think people get it. It could be tied to a small contract. Issued yeah. in amber, small contract, executes, retention, released. So the UK, I'm a Brit and a Canadian. This is why this accent sounds strange. I'm doing some work in the UK at the moment, and there was a horrific fire there a few years ago called the Grenfell mm-hmm. Tire. Yeah. And that has sparked a load of building regulation change, particularly relating to cladding. And they're going down this path called the golden thread, the single source of truth. So what it basically becomes is a chain of custody from design to facilities maintenance, right, where everything is known, logged in a central place, and it's called the golden thread, right? And there is only one single source of truth, and it is in that place. That whole concept works for design and construction of any building. And I actually think that might bleed out from that is a way of managing information and data and information assets on projects, right? I think that's where it's going in 20 years' time, so... I would say the challenge is is that there is the authorities that have jurisdiction and the governments in Canada, there's no data standards kind of coming out for the industry. The concept of e-permitting in the municipality of Toronto is still something that's like a, I think they're thinking about it. And we see municipalities around Ontario kind of shifting to that. But the Ontario government doesn't have a BIM mandate. The federal government doesn't have, I think, a BIM mandate that's nationwide. That is the challenge, right? Because right now, when it comes to all of the things that we're doing in terms of digital delivery of design and construction, everyone is doing it differently. And that's what's really hard about the industry right now. The expectations are different on every project. The level of education at the owner level is very different on what they should be getting, what they should be asking for, what's important to them. The expectations of the relationship between the consultant and the builders is different with every builder that you work with. It's all over the place. And here we are recently, a colleague of mine was having an argument with a municipality in BC about why he couldn't digitally stamp his drawings. He had to wet stamp the drawings. This is 2022 here. He had to come in on, uh, over his Christmas holidays and wet stamp a few hundred drawings because th- this municipality would not accept anything else simply because they didn't want to. There was no reason. They just said no. But, and so I think that's a hurdle, right? I've got to say, just for our international audience, in North America, we have this 1940s concept of For a drawing to be official, it has to be stamped by a living human being and signed with ink. This is the equivalent of a quill and a powdered wig. It's not that different. Only in North America. So somehow the rest of the world has moved past this. God bless Canada America. They just can't get over it. It blew my mind when I moved to Canada and saw this going on. I just couldn't believe it was happening. It was just so strange. You want to talk about like what is going to be the roadblock here, it's that. Because unless there's a common way for all us to do something, a common way for us to submit 
digital products to permitting offices and have that go through that system, then all of this is going to be very challenging because everybody's going to be doing it differently. This was almost a couple of years ago, but through an organization called the Toronto BIM community, we had somebody come in from a small town in Finland and they had adopted a completely digital delivery of designs to their permitting office. Yeah. So they would get a model, they would use software to do the code compliance, they would take that model and they would put it in their digital twin and folks in the town could download an app and see what this is going to look like through augmented reality. All of these things are possible. This isn't like, oh, this is some future thing that some things need to change before they can happen. All of this is possible. It's just this unwillingness to look at it. And for whatever reason, unwillingness for our government at any level to think about it. I think that's the, like nothing is being done to kind of think about data governance, privacy as it relates to IoT and whatnot. And I think it's a, that is going to be the biggest hurdle for the industry to overcome. This has some interesting implications in copyright protection. If there was a requirement for digital filing of designs, then those become registered, just like you get a, any kind of identification on any publication that you do. And then in the event that somebody tries to copyright that, it's been filed already. There's some protective elements to this. Comes right? an NFT on permit. Yeah, it's a big challenge. Like we exchange Revit models with other consultants on a regular basis. There's a lot of custom content within those models. There are maybe different ways we've set up the database infrastructure in that model, right? Like how we schedule information and the relations between different elements in there. And all of that can just be taken, right? There is no protection on that whatsoever. I'm of varied opinions on like, if the whole industry is moving upwards, then we all move upwards together, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. The only other direction is a race to the bottom. And I'd rather be going up than going down. <laughs> That's certainly a real challenge. I read recently that somebody bought some NFT group bought a NFT of Dune for like $3.2 million or something ridiculous. And they somehow now thought they had the copyright to the book, right? And so I think somebody needs a bit of education there, but it's really fascinating. And we're going to see more and more of that. I agree 100%. I just can't get out. There's a meme in my head. There's a guy with like digital tools. It says Finland. And there's a guy with a powdered wig stamp in a drawer and it says Canada. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. <laughs> yeah. Get that meme going. So, look, you're right. I think for someone like you and your team in your stage of your career, you're at the start of a wave that's starting to build, right? But I personally think, and I'd be interested to get your take on this, you're starting to see a bifurcation of, let's take MEP design firms, right? But this applies to project managers, coin surveyors, architects, there's going to be a Premier League and then the rest, right? Like, for example, H. Angus seemed to be ahead of the curve, right? You've got 40% of your revenue in BIM projects. You've got a team dedicated to digital twins and IoT, right? So you're all firmly in the Premier League. Do you see the industry bifurcating this way to the firms that can be digital and the firms that can't? I think so, because, and I think it's going to be, even for myself, I think it's existential to the continuation of a lot of organizations because once the folks figure out how to use these digital tools to maximize their efficiencies, the folks not using those tools won't be able to compete because they won't be able to create designs as efficient. They won't be able to produce as quickly. They won't be able to 
do things at the rate that and adopt new technology that these other organizations can. And that's part of my kind of fear and why I'm kind of shouting from the mountaintops here internally that we have to start down that path. Otherwise, we're going to be left behind. You know, we're driving towards a cliff and everybody else is going to figure out how to turn their car into a plane and the rest of us are just going to drive off the cliff, right? I think about that a lot. And in some ways, a scary thought because technology is changing so quickly in front of us. It's faster than ever, and it's only going to get faster. And that kind of adaptation and adoption is going to have to become something that is regular for us. If you look at the last kind of 30 years, there's been some pretty big changes in construction, but they've taken a long time, and there hasn't been that many kind of changes in how we do the work. And I think we're going to see that changing very, very quickly to the point where I think these tools are going to be more companions than tools, right? They're going to help us make decisions. They're going to provide us with designs that we pick based off of things that maybe are more suited for humans to kind of make decisions on, things on aesthetics or whatnot, right? But the other point that I wanted to make, we're already seeing a commoditization of our industry, right? It is very challenging to work in this industry because the margins are shrinking and the competition is fierce and the fees are going down. There's a lot of fee pressure. So it's really the folks that figure it out will have new services. They'll be able to do their core services differently. And then the rest will fade away. It's a reality. You know, I lived that in the early days of my career. And I guess looking back, we were kind of the incubator for a lot of what you're talking about today, and that is when I got out of school, CAD was just making its launch. I actually went back to school, night school, to get a certification in CAD. And what I did with that in our business was then to be able to communicate with the engineering community. We had a distribution company at the time, but it was all engineered products. But our ability to provide digital feedback to the engineers strengthened the bond that we had with that community. Mm -hmm. And what it did for us from a competitive point of view is our competitors couldn't touch us. It was going to take them time to even ramp up to A, get the skills and then transfer that to their staff. And so we, for a blip in time, we dominated that marketplace. But then eventually everybody else, exactly what you're saying right now, they had to decide what path are we going to take here? Are we going to jump on this? And that's going to require a whole bunch of investment in hardware and software and training and all that? Or are we just going to say that's not our game? And those that didn't want to play the game, they really slipped to the bottom. The only thing that they had in their tool belt was price. That was it. We didn't have to play the price game because we were playing a different game, which is about speaking the language of the engineering community, architectural community through the digital world as immature as it was back then. But even in that small incubation stage, that was the benefit. This will be good for people at H. Angus because there's a barriers to entries are starting to rise here, right? And the barrier to entry to play this game is the right human capital with the right digital tools. That takes investment, right? So the days exactly. of you know having a nice haircut, a little laptop and a nice basement and starting up are gone. I feel very fortunate that we and my team, and I say we, have the opportunity to work on these things and the space to get to work on these things because there is overhead costs to the organization to adopt 
this outlook and to give us a space to try new things and try new technologies. A lot of the pilot projects that we're going to work on, we might learn something really interesting, but it might not go anywhere, right? It might not be the thing that takes us into the future, but it gives us the opportunity to learn. And so often, I think, in these organizations is that it's about that grind. It's like the next project, next project, next project. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like nice to think that, oh, maybe folks will have some time to work on something at the side of their desk. But we only got so far being able to do things on the side of our desk. My role as kind of the BIM leader before I became the director of the digital services, that was like a a side job of mine. I still did project engineering and I had clients I had to deal with, you know, teams to manage, projects to manage. And it was a grind because it was really hard to get anything done on the BIM stuff. And then that kind of translated into, okay, we clearly need somebody on your team that's full-time. So I had one person that was kind of like the BIM person in the company and kind of the boots on the ground. But now we have a team of over 14 people for an organization of about 250 people that are dedicated to servicing the company internally to support BIM and digital technologies. And, you know, we also have a group in the organization, Angus Connect, and they are focused more on management consulting type services where they provide digital strategy planning and digital and whatnot for healthcare and commercial clients, which those two things work really well together. Because I think a big part of any organization, even ourselves, is trying to figure out, okay, we want to digitize. We want to use this technology, but it's like, how? To put some scope around this, I mean, you think about 14 people on the, yeah. well, just to make it simple, the profit that's required from the years of the business to pay for that support team. Mm-hmm. It's not just a matter of, okay, we're going to go hire a bunch of people. We got to be able to support that through the profits of the business. So it's a little bit... Scale becomes a barrier to entry. <laughs> totally. For sure. For yeah. sure. And it's a lot yeah. easier for like the Arabs or the WSPs of the world because just from their sheer scale, they have a lot to invest back. And for us, we're fortunate in that the organization does have a future looking mindset and they've realized the value of having these folks on the team. The good thing is that a lot of the BIM team, they are specialized, but they work on projects and so they're not pure overhead. But The digital services side right now, I think over the last kind of year or so, are just getting to the point where we are generating some revenue, right? And so it took a lot of time to get there, but we're kind of hopefully coming over that crest and saying, now we're doing stuff, now we're getting paid to do this stuff. Let's continue to expand on that. But the organization has to be willing to invest in that. But to me, it's like a do or die, right? It's like you do this or you go the way of the dinosaurs and and there's no middle ground. Yeah, I mean, the hard thing for Angus as a firm is you're a large, medium-sized firm, but you're competing with the Stantex and the Arabs of the world, right? That is your your struggle. So I've got one more question for you as a fortune teller and soothsayer of the future. So... (laughs) Well, I think another big battleground or problem area is going to be who owns the data. So one of my theories is there is a potential world in the future, like when you get your iPhone, you don't own it, you don't own the data on it, right? You rent it. That's how they make it affordable. Is there a future where Belima, for example, sell a ton of valves to people who can't afford them on a university campus and say, here they are, they're subsidized down to next to nothing, but we own all the data. I totally think that that is in the future because, and I think that goes not just for, let's say, for control valves, but for anything. You're building automation systems. I think that there's a bunch of companies out there that do, for instance, fault detection diagnostic, right? They uh, like Copper Tree Analytics. Their thing is to get as much square footage 
under their platform to collect as much data as they can to improve the product and then maybe sell that data to who knows, right? Maybe they'll start selling that data to engineering consultants to say, do you want to know how this type of building operates? This type of occupancy, this type of square footage, this climate, right? That's what they're doing. Like doing the fault detection, I think is a good downstream benefit for the building owner, but that's not what they're in it for. And that's not where they see their profits going. I think a big part of it is for organizations to understand the value of their data. As an individual, that's something that I think we have to learn as well. But it will manifest in a number of different ways. But if a building starts to understand, maybe it's like, okay, Johnson Controls, I know you want this data. Maybe you're going to discount me on my control system, or we're going to figure out some kind of financial agreement in terms of the accessing of this data, because it is my data. It is not your data. It's going to be a huge battleground. Unfortunately, if it goes the way that it's going right now, we will not have that ownership over the data. It seems to me like as individuals, we've completely kind of become complicit in the whole kind of machine. And we don't really seem to care that we carry these things around in our pockets that seem to know a lot about us. I was talking about somebody about the shopper's optimum and the PC optimum. Like Loblaws knows more about me than probably the people in my life. They know everything about me. They can make predictions on if I'm sick or if I'm about to have a baby or whatnot because they have all this data from Akira, I hate to break this to you, but if they know that you're going to have a baby, you need to share that with the world. (laughs) That's true. Something's happened to man, womankind, genetics have changed. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Akira's having a baby. understood about data collection ownership, they would freak out if they knew uh, what's yeah, going on. They don't get it. You know, it's all these yeah. folks that are kind of up in arms about the far right, about government intervention and government control and 5G technology and all this stuff. Yeah. I'm sure they happily carry around a cell phone and have no idea that they already know where you are all the time. <laughs> so these people are saying people that tell you you're a monster, right? And yeah. they're, uh, they're holding a phone made by slave labor and they're driving a Tesla in Ontario, which is like promoting coal mining. <laughs> exactly. Coal exactly. Mine you. exactly. It's a crazy world we live in. But I think that yeah. it would be great as consultants. For, and this is why I'm really interested in cloud technology and leveraging cloud technology and bringing that to our clients. Because I think as consultants, we're uniquely positioned to say, hey, maybe you should start thinking about your data ownership. Maybe you should start thinking about the fact that you could monetize this or have control over it, whatever it is in between, because we've always been kind of the trusted partner, right, of our clients and they still come to us for advice. And I think it's just, we have to modernize in terms of the type of advice that we're giving. And that's where the value will come. So we're coming up on the hour now. So I want to move in, because I'm conscious of your time and Robert's time. I want to move into a quick fire question session. So I just have one. I'll kick it off. So knowing what you know, right, because you know a bit more than the average bear, it's fair to say about what we're talking about. Knowing what you know now and what you see out ahead and what you understand about privacy and data ownership, what keeps you up at night? What's the thing you worry about the most looking forward? Well, I mean, me. He's worried about having a baby. (laughs) Exactly. Paying my mortgage, actually. That's the big one. But, you know, ultimately, I think there's two things that I think about. And 
one is kind of a selfish thing and it's like the future of our organization and making sure that we have a place in that future. That's what drives me to continue to work and to learn and to see what's out there and really kind of advocate for it within the organization itself. The other thing that keeps me up at night, and I think we touched on it, is just that the governments of our country at every level are not going to act fast enough for us to leverage these technologies in a meaningful way. Now is not the time for us to be 10 years behind the rest of the world, right? It's going to have, from a perspective of us being global players, we will start to see an encroachment of external forces, I think, that are leveraging these technologies better. I already see an encroachment from competition that 10 years ago, it would have been laughable. Like you see professional service firms, the Deloitte and the KPMGs of the world, doing digital strategies, doing cloud implementations and cloud migrations and all this kind of stuff. And because of how that's going to impact the built environment, they are coming into our space, right? And then you see big tech coming into our space as well with things like Willow and Thoughtwire, building optimizations, digital twinning. Where does that leave us? And I think that those are the things that keep me up at night. I'll tell you where that leaves you. Jones Langless sells CBR Egan and buy H. Angus. That's my prediction. (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) So, Akira, let's just say you're the master puppeteer of the digital world and you're sitting up there high on the mountain and you look back at the 70s, coming up through the 80s, the 90s, and then eventually to where we are today. Two questions. What would you have changed in the past? If you actually were in charge of how this thing evolved in the past, what would you have changed in the last 40 years and then as the master puppeteer, what would you do to make sure that we expedite this whole transition going forward? It took 40 years to get to this place. <laughs> that is a really hard question to answer. I would say that if I was going to change anything, it would certainly be around how things like big tech kind of gained control of the world, right? I think about something like Facebook and social media. It has revolutionized our world. However you want to make fun of Mark Zuckerberg, the man has changed the face of the world. And a lot of it is not for the better, right? I think if we had known the impact of social media and kind of this ability for so much data to be accessed by so many people, but also so much giving a platform for so many people that didn't have a platform before that maybe shouldn't have a platform and kind of the spread of the kind of divisions in our world. I think that's where I would have changed something and said, is there a better way that we could have done this? Because I think that there's a whole big thing that has to be sorted out there. And it all comes down to, you know, our data and the sharing of knowledge and stuff like that. But, and I know that doesn't really kind of impact the built environment directly, but I think it impacts society in a big way. And that is how I would have kind of changed that because media and social media is a, is a part of that, I think has become a weapon for the interests of groups. And I'm not trying to get too political here, but it affects everything that we do and it affects our lives every day. And a lot of the divisions I think have come from like this weaponization of media. It's all kind of interlinked, right? Like everything is part of everything at this point. That is globalization. And that is what I would change, yeah. That's that's interesting because it reminds me of the philosophical discussion. Normally after everyone's had 10 beers, if you could go back in time, would you kill Hitler as a baby? So the new question is, for your generation, if you could go back in time, would you kill Mark Zuckerberg in the crib? 
<laughs> I guess that's the that's the big question. Um, I think that philosophically, obviously, philosophically, no. I think the answer is no. I mean, uh, this technology has changed our lives. I just don't think the governments have been able to keep up. Right? They're the only ones that have the power to rein in the corporations, and it seems to me like the corporations have taken over the world. Not to be too doomsaying about this, but I think it's true, and they have so much power over our lives, seemingly. And they know so much about us now. And I think that it could have been done differently. But hindsight is twenty twenty. But you know what the answer to that is antitrust legislation. You break them up the same way. The oil companies were broken up the same way. The phone companies were broken up. You break up Amazon, get YouTube out of it, which is the third or second largest search engine in the world, by the way. Mm-hmm. Right? No, people don't think about that. Mm-hmm. Or you break up Instagram, Facebook, and all of that. That could be done tomorrow. But yeah. it's a political game at that point, right? It is, yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting how governments have chosen to where they can apply their power and they don't. And yeah. like right now, COVID, we have people in charge of minimum requirements making decisions that result in life and death. Yeah. And it's all based on the minimums rather than the maximums. You would never yeah. hide if, you know, Adam, you talk about yeah. Navy SEALs, right? When they yeah. go in and they do something, there's no minimums in Navy SEAL <laughs> operations. Maximum yeah. plus, right? It's, absolutely yeah. it is, right? Yeah. So the governments have the power, but they've chosen not to do that. And that's just an indication that what we have in power are actually not leaders, but in fact, managers. And we've confused the terms. Managers sure. manage the known, leaders manage the unknown. That yeah, absolutely. Distinction I've heard. So yeah. listen, we're coming up on time now. So I just want to thank you for coming on. That was a great, I could carry on this discussion forever. Thank you for coming on. Great insight and kudos and congratulations on your job and position in the world. Because I think you are at the sweet spot for a fantastic career right here. I certainly hope so. And for the folks out there that are wondering how to get into this, it it was an interesting road, but I think it's always trying to find something new. And honestly, you're going to face resistance wherever organization you work. I think it's just kind of never giving up and just keep going and keep pushing because this is a marathon, right? This is not a sprint and uh, we're in it for the long run. So Great. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me. Great chat. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software. Blue Rhythm is the commissioning software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. Frankly, it's just chaos out there. Blue Rhythm removes this chaos. It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet, or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is their painless and fast onboarding process. Their team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue Rhythm for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional and functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, Go to bluerhythm.com or call country code plus one six one two four six zero eight three zero five. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode twenty six of the Edifice Complex podcast. Robert, Robert, are we there yet? I'm bored. <laughs> Adam, well, it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from Sensor Suite. Go on. 
That's a sweet. Yep, they're an innovator, smart building technology. We like them. They can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you time and energy. You mean that's a sweet of moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century? Yeah, I know. Another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it, and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains. Okay, I'm in. How do I find out more? Got to go to sensorsuite.com or call 1-855-773-6767. And also check out the July 2020 episode of the NFS Complex podcast and listen to Census Suite CEO, Glenn Spry. And now, back to the show. Uh, that was inspiring, as they always are. What I liked about the discussion we had with Akira was, um, well, it reveals sort of the continuum that we've been on, like those of us that started our careers where there was no digital world, it was still hand drawings, <laughs> vellum, yeah, yeah. <laughs> remember the ammonia blueprint? I, <laughs> <laughs> I remember my drafting instructor, this is like grade 12, right? And he would come in and he had his thermos, he would stick it on the desk and he had more than coffee <laughs> in that thermos. The whole world that we've grown up in, in terms of pencils and sharpening pencils and then moving to a computer screen the dos version of autocad ammonia drawings that make your eyes water do you remember them oh yeah totally Totally, right my god uh, yeah and fixing errors on drawings was just right when i think back at the 40 years it's been a blink to talk about where we are today it's fascinating it really is and i and you can sort of see the trajectory right so you could say 40 years is sort of two generations, a little bit under, but it's two generations-ish, right? It's only two generations of work life, right? Yeah, right. So I started, and one of the guys I worked with used a slide rule, and he was faster yeah. than me on my calculator, which used to drive me insane. Yeah. And <laughs> he told me confidently this AutoCAD thing will never catch on, and he was a genius, <laughs> right? But, you know, I worked with a guy who used a slide wall. I had folded drawings that were dunked in ammonia that made my eyes water. Faxes come in, also CAD come in. And that was, say, two work generations. Whereas Akira is going to see probably more change in one work generation, I would say. So when he's our age, (laughs) he'll be looking back on even more change than us, which is freaking mind-blowing, actually, right? Well, when you think about even our podcast here, like this is going on our Fifth year or six year or something. Is it? Is yeah. I can remember when we started, but every once in a while I'll go back and I'll look listen to the programs and when we when we were talking about blockchain and yeah. cryptocurrencies and data points and it didn't take long. So in Akira's career, like in five years, like I mean, he'll learn more and be exposed to more and, and invoke change in five years than what it took us in 40 years to get to where we are today. I mean, the curve is log, it's exponential, right? So I don't know how self-aware he is, but he, as a human being in our businesses, could become a very valuable guy because oh yeah, you know, his skill set now is a bit meta and certainly a level above probably 90% of people around him. Now, yeah. just for people listening, think about this, right? He started as a graduate engineer, like every graduate engineer starts, right? New haircut, pat on the back from mum. Starts his first day at work, he's given a desk, and through a side project, he's created a whole new career arc for himself. Yeah. That wasn't an accident. He chose to do that. He did the time, he did the work on the side, and he is going to be a very valuable human being going forward. There's no yeah. question about that. That is a great career example. I wonder, I don't know how many people that are sort of in the Cures age group, obviously, they're familiar with AutoCAD and Autodesk and these right. firms. 
when you think about where those companies got to where they are today, a lot of it comes back to one individual, and that's Dr. Andrew Marsh. And Dr. Andrew Marsh had a company called Square One Research Work. And he was a architect, computer wizard. I mean, the guy, he just saw the world differently. And he yeah. developed these little small applications. This is going back, like this is going back into uh, late 1990s, early 2000s, where he developed these little computer apps for doing modeling of uh-huh. sun path diagrams and thermal comfort and psychometric processes and then lighting and all of these things. That, and that was him. And then he grew that business and then ultimately sold it to Autodesk. Wow. And then Autodesk, of oh, course, great ride. that's one individual that changed yeah. the way the world does stuff. I mean, Autodesk was already on a trajectory, but when they acquired Andrew's intellectual knowledge and started to implement it into their programs, because at that time, Andrew had developed a package suite of, of design tools. I mean, it just it changed everything. Now he's living on a small private island somewhere in the UK, I think. <laughs> you have a machine gun nest. Keep <laughs> you know, that's another example, actually, in terms of career up, right? So even though you look at some of these businesses, they're huge. You think, how can anyone make a difference there? The yeah. right person with the right ideas and the right skill set can make a difference, right? He made a difference to that massive organization and his intellectual capital, right? Ecotech was the tool that he yeah. ultimately, yeah. So that's another example. You can individually make a difference. It's on you to like find a thing that interests you and like pick at it and develop it and take it somewhere, right? Same way as Akira has, right? That yeah. is amazing. I love that. I'm sort of jealous. I remember when we interviewed Steve Burrows, who was sort of at the end oh, of yeah. his career. He's had a TV career. He's, and he was saying, I'm just so sad to be at the end of my career because it's such a great time to be in engineering and in buildings, right? Because yeah. I was thinking that when I, we were interviewing Akira because he's such a sweet spot to see a, have a great ride and see the change and be part of the change. Man, I'm sort of almost jealous in a way. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about that in the past and that is if we could have another 100 years, oh, God, it would that, be man. awesome, man. That. It would be so awesome. But yeah. My takeaway on the upbeat is you know, there's never been a better, more exciting, more interesting time to be involved in designing, constructing, delivering buildings, ever. Yeah. It's amazing yeah. what is in front of us. Right the wrongs and building the new stuff and digitizing everything. There is just career upon career upon career there. But maybe it's this group of people coming up that finally put their foot down when it comes to prefabrication and say, that's it. Yeah. I'd love to see that. This project is prefabricated. And if you want to bid on it, you have to be a prefabricator contractor. And we're not even going to entertain any other way of doing yeah. things. So it's maybe this generation with these tools finally put their foot down and said, that's it. It Done. takes a, a big, like an infrastructure Ontario to put their foot down or a massive developer to put their foot down and say, that's it. This is it. If you yeah. all of us, these are the rules. If not, please just go away. Right? Absolutely. That's yeah. what it needs. It really does need that. God, so we'll keep our eye on Akira until uh, until we finally pass away, and maybe he'll be the he'll be the guy. This is just someone else. I've got to stalk like a crazy ex girlfriend. <laughs> that was great. I'll see you on the next one. Okay, talk to you later. <laughs> see yeah, you. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com.
See you next time.